Yes, I am. He said, "Oh man, I wish Nathan or, or I, I wish Nathan or Jordan was." <laughs> thanks, thanks a lot for nothing. <laughs> Goodness gracious! No, now I, I'm just thankful that uh, we have guys that can bring God's word um, to us and uh, in a faithful way. God loves His church a lot more than anybody else. I do. Um, collectively, we do. I mean, we love Wellspring, but God loves His church even more, and so I'm grateful for that and for guys to bring. His word, Nathan, last week, man, I heard it was awesome. Jordan, a few weeks ago, thank you very much for doing that. Oh, well, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into uh, Acts chapter 9. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just honor its teaching. Lord, that you would use, use it to change us, to make us, mold us more into your image this morning. Your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been in the book of Acts this summer, and the main, the main thing that we've been looking at, that we've been tracking is, how has the gospel moved from a small group of people, a handful of followers, into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then ultimately, how has it moved to the ends of the earth? And so we've been, we've been tracking the movement of the gospel. Now, we already know the end of the story, right? I mean, we are here this morning, 2,000 years later, half a, world, half, half a world away, proclaiming, teaching, praising a Jewish carpenter. So we know the end of the story, but how did we get from the beginning of the story to where we are today? How did we get there? And so that's what we've been tracking in the, the storyline. The way that we got there is found in the book of Acts. And so we've just been tracking the movement of the gospel from the beginning through Jerusalem, through Judea, Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. Kind of a, where we've been, get you up to speed, since it has been a few weeks, in case you've missed a few. Um, we started by seeing that Jesus, who was crucified, came back, rose from the, the, the dead, rose from the grave, and pulled his followers together, a handful of, of them, and then went up, to the mountain and said, hey, I want you to be my, my witnesses. I want you to be my witnesses not only here in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And then he, he raised up, went into heaven. Guys were standing there looking at each other, thinking, well, what do we do now? They decided they better get to work. If that was his last commandment, if that's the last thing that he said to them, they better obey, they better get to work. And so that's exactly what happened. A few days later, the Holy Spirit fell. They went out of the room down into Jerusalem in the middle of, of, of Pentecost, or not, not Pentecost, excuse me, um, in, the, in the middle of, of uh, help me here, I'm sorry, yes, right there in the temple, thank you, Whew. losing my mind up here, um, right there in the middle of the temple, Peter preaches a sermon, and thousands, we don't know exactly how many, but thousands of people responded to the gospel. A couple, couple days later, he's out in the middle of the street, and he Preaches again, basically the same sermon. Maybe I should try that, and then I'll remember where I'm going. Uh, same sermon. Thousands more. So many that about 10%, about 10% of the entire population has heard the gospel inside of Jerusalem and responded to their need for a Savior. This becomes a threat to the local government. So much so that when a young man by the name of Stephen stands up 
preaches a sermon. When he's walking out, finishing his sermon, he's arrested, carried outside of the gates, stoned, executed for his belief in the gospel, becoming the very first martyr for the sake of the name of Jesus. A few weeks ago, Jordan talked about how it had, the gospel had spread in Jerusalem, but it hadn't made it outside of the walls of Jerusalem up to this point. And then, because of this persecution that was beginning to take place inside the city, the, the, the Christians began to spread. It was almost like they, they, they would kick over this anthill and the, the ants would spread. They would kick over an anthill and the ants would spread. That's exactly what happened. These believers, these Christians who were facing persecution began to take this gospel outside of the walls into Judea, and then specifically Samaria. Now this was no small thing. I mean, any, any Jewish man, any Jewish woman worth their salt hated, I mean, hated Samaritans. They were half-breeds. But they understood that the gospel compelled us, even propelled us, and still propels us today to people that look different from us, speak a different language from us, People that we, our culture, may say are not supposed to come in contact with. The gospel is greater than that. And it propelled them, these first century believers, to take the gospel to Judea and Samaria. Well, up to this point, up through chapter 8, the gospel has not spread outside of Judea and Samaria. There's still millions and millions of people who have never heard the name of Jesus. But that's about to change. Chapter 8, Dr. Luke gives us uh, almost a foreshadow of things to come. He talks about when Stephen's being executed, being stoned, that there was this young man by the name of Saul who looked on approvingly at what was going on. He held the coats of the people who threw the stones. Foreshadowing for us as his readers something that was about to happen, and we find out exactly what that was in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Here we go. It says this, but Saul, the guy that was looking on approvingly at the execution of Stephen, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Stop right there. Luke tells us in the middle there that this had gone on for about three years. That Saul was the leading um, uh, person, uh, in, the, the leading, the leading uh, individual in persecuting, in, in attacking people or followers of the way. So for three years, he would go house to house because that's where the Christians met. That's where they, they held church. He would go house to house looking for followers of Jesus, of followers of the gospel, followers of the way, believers in Christ. And so he would go house to house to house looking for these people. And he did this for three years, uninhibited. Nobody stopped him. And he would take these believers, these followers of Jesus, he would take them out, have them arrested, and sent back to Jerusalem to be tried, put in jail, and many executed. Day after day after day, he was the leading inquisitor of going after these followers of the way, kicking over the anthill, so to speak, and then seeing them scattered, seeing them spread. He was in charge, and he did this for three years, and nobody stopped him. But he's still breathing threats three years later. So he went to the high priest and asked for letters 
to the synagogues at Damascus. So here's what he did. After three years, he decided, you know what? I'm going to get formal, um, the formal okay, formal permission to continue to go after these Christians, these followers of Jesus. So he goes to the high priest. And he says, hey, can I, can I be the leader? Can I be the, the, the leading person in this continued persecution of people who belong to the way? People who are Christians. People who profess the gospel. The high priest said, sure, you're the point man. You're in charge. He said, okay, I'm going I'm to start in Damascus, and then I'll spread out from there. So the high priest writes this letter saying that Paul has... The responsibility, he has the permission to execute, or to, excuse me, to arrest and bring back these followers of the way to Jerusalem. So that's what he sets out to do. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound, back bound to Jerusalem. Next verse. Now, as he went on his way, and this is a story you've probably heard since before you could walk. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I love this. Because if the church, the, the New Testament church was, as you and I many times think about it, think of it, Jesus would have said this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting it? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting the organization? Why are you, why are you persecuting the, the, the group of people that, that gather together to meet on Sunday morning? Why are you persecuting it? But that's not what Jesus asks. He says this, why are you persecuting me? Implication. You and I, collectively, the body of Christ are the hands and feet of Jesus here on earth. You and I, collectively, not individually, you're not that good and I'm not that good. We say that all the time. But it's true. You're not that good. I'm not that good. We do not represent Jesus by ourselves. We are, we are part of the body of Christ, part of the church who represents Jesus here on earth. So that when we speak collectively, we're speaking on behalf of our Savior. When we, when we help, when we, are, when we go to the, to the needy and the poor, collectively, we are the hands and the feet of Jesus. So we are the representation of Jesus here on earth as the body of Christ. And so that's why Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which Saul must have responded or must have at least thought, I'm not persecuting a me. I'm persecuting it. I'm pers persecuting these people who are, who are mocking everything that's been going on for the last 2,000 years as we seek to serve Yahweh. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. There is no it. The church is me. When you hurt followers of the gospel, when you hurt followers of Jesus, you hurt me. He goes on. And he said, Saul, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. And he reiterates, whom you are persecuting. 
But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. So that's exactly what happens. Paul picks himself up. He realizes that he's been blinded by the light. The people who are with him help get him off the ground, help probably put him on a horse or donkey of some sort, and head to Damascus, where he um, is taken to a guy's house by the name of Judas. About that time, a guy by the name of Ananias enters the story. And here's what happens. Next verse, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Now, the Lord speaks to me in a vision. Scott, I'm not responding like that. It's going to be a little bit crazier. But um, he just said, Here I am, Lord. He was expecting it. That must be awesome. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. I love the detail. This is history. This is not fantasy. Go to a street called Straight. This meant that the straight was street. The, the street was straight. <laughs> Woo! And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain. His sight. Is there another one, Dakota? But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Put another way, Lord, I think he's coming to Damascus to find me. I don't think I need to go to Judas' house and find him. I think he's coming to look for me. I'm going to stay away. I think I need to stay away. I mean, after all, I, there, there are countless numbers of people, countless friends that I know, men and women and children alike, countless people that I know, who were here one day. We woke up the next morning and they were gone. And it's because of this guy from Tarsus. I think I want to keep my distance. I have friends who are dead today because of this man. I don't want to go looking for him. Continues. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. My name, my message, this gospel, it's not just for the Jewish people, it's not just for the city of Jerusalem, it's not just for Judea. It's not just for Samaria. It is for everybody. It is even for the Gentiles. It is for you and it is for me. And he is going to be my vessel. He is going to be the person that leads the way. And then I love how he closes it out because it becomes so true. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so that's exactly what Ananias does, he gets up, he goes to the house. Now, you can go there in my, my mind's eye. I cannot imagine. His heart was probably pounding out of his chest. He steps up to this house and he begins to think of the numerous people that he has known that were followers of the way but have been arrested, carried back to Jerusalem, and either put in jail or executed by this very man. Numerous people, over and over, time after time. 
It's all because of this guy named Saul. But Ananias steps up to the door and he knocks. Ananias goes in. He finds Saul. He places his hands on him and he prays for him. And the Bible, the Bible tells us that something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. For the next 12, 15 years, Saul goes off the grid. He, he doesn't do a whole lot of preaching. Every once in a while, there's a few times that he does some preaching, but he goes off the grid. And he begins to get his education, following these disciples and learning more about him. The next verses tell us a little bit about it. It says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying that he is the Son of God. And all who heard it were amazed and said, Is this not the man who had made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon this name? They were amazed at what happened. So he goes off the grid. He begins to get his education. For the next 10, 15 years. After that, the next 10, 10 years or so, he goes on what has become, become known as his missionary journeys. Basically, he takes the Mediterranean Sea and he looks at the ring and all the important cities all the way around the Mediterranean Sea. And he says, that's the area I'm going to go to. Basically, he looked at the disciples, the original apostles, and he said, guys, y'all take Jerusalem. I got the rest of the world. And that's exactly what happened. And so he goes to all the strategic, important cities, Corinth, Athens, Thessalonica, the list goes on. He went to all of those cities. He would show up there and he would go to the synagogue. And he would begin to preach the gospel, this good news of Jesus. Once the Jewish people would get mad, they would take him, they would throw him out of the synagogue. Many times they would beat him or stone him. He would pick himself up, dust himself off, go back into the city and find out where the Gentiles were hanging out. And he'd say, hey, I got, I, got, I got this news. I've got this good news about this man named Jesus. He came, not as a representation of, of, of God, but as God himself in the flesh. He lived perfectly. He died victoriously. And he rose again. And you can have a relationship with God. All of this work that you've done to try and appease some, some being out there, I've got news for you. He came to you. And he shared this message. Time after time after time. In city after city after city. And people would respond to the gospel. They would begin to meet in these groups. And the gospel took root in their lives. And leaders kind of rose to the top. And churches were formed. And Paul trained them. And after they, they were trained, and after their, their, their uh, maturity uh, began to be evident, Paul would pick himself up. He would move to the next city. He would find the synagogue. He would go and he would preach there. And they would throw him out, take him out many times, beat him or stone him. He would pick himself up, dust himself off, head back into the city and find out where the Gentiles were hanging out. And he would tell them, hey, I know you've been trying to appease some being out there, some, some, some uh, divinity out there. But let me tell you some good news. God has showed up in the flesh and his, and his name is Jesus. And he uh, lived perfectly. He died perfectly. He rose victoriously. And you can have a relationship with God if you'll place your faith in Him. And people in this city would respond to the gospel. They would begin to meet. The gospel truth went deep into their lives. Leaders rose up. And He would plant a church there. 
And after the church began to mature, he would move on to the next city. And he would do it again. And he would do it again. And he did this for 10 to 15 years. Well, finally, the Romans got tired of this. And he was arrested. For about a year and a half, he spent time in jail. Finally, he was let loose. During that time, he wrote all these letters that we have that make up most of our New Testament. He was, he was let loose for a short time. A couple years later, he was uh, arrested one last time. One final time for a year and a half, he spent in jail in a dungeon. Then one early morning in about 66 AD, roughly, the Roman centurions went into his dungeon, pulled him out, and led him to an area of the city that was known for its executions. And I imagine that it was one early day that they led him to this place. And without much fanfare, nobody was present, nobody knew exactly what was going on, Paul breathed his last when he was executed by being beheaded. And his life was over. But his ministry had just begun. And the evidence is in this room today. Because you and I are here. Two implications from the text that I want to take away. And then we're done. Number one is this. God is in control. He is sovereign over the good times and the bad. The chaos and the... The, um, under, he is a sovereign over the chaos and <clears throat> over the good times. He is sovereign over it all. You may be sitting there going, no, 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 no I'm not sure about that, Scott. I mean, I, I don't understand how a good and loving God can be sovereign over the difficulties, over the, the chaos that is my life. I don't know how a good and a loving God can be uh, sovereign, can be in control over the chaos that is this world. Have you ever watched the nightly news, Scott? How can a good and a loving God be sovereign over that? And I would say that's a formidable question. And I've wondered the same thing not too long ago. A few months ago, Mary Jo and I and the kids went down to Fort Worth for a few days. My cousin, Jennifer, she has five or six kids. I can't even keep up. They're coming so fast. But she, she has five or six kids. And um, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, she uh, uh, gave birth to a little boy named Jacob. And it hadn't shown up on the sonograms or anything, but when he was born, he had Down syndrome. Unexpected. And he spent the first few months of his life in, in the hospital. And uh, finally he got well enough to be able to go home, but it was short-lived, and he was back in the hospital, and then he was home. He was back in the hospital, and he was home. I mean, the first year of his life, he was, he was in the hospital a lot, of, a lot of the time. Well, towards the end of that first year, it looked like little Jacob had finally turned the corner. That he was actually getting better. He was going to be off the speeding tube. He was going to be able to breathe on his own. Um, things were looking up for little Jacob. But one morning they woke up and Jacob looked like he was not doing, doing real well. But there was nothing to be too concerned about. I mean, they had been down this road before and it had been a lot worse. 
But they decided that they were going to go ahead and take him to the hospital to have his um, equipment, his medical equipment, sterilized. They were going to clean out his breathing passage, clean out you know, how he eats, his feeding tube, all of those sorts of things, because they didn't want him to get worse. So this was just going to be an average stay, an average stop at the hospital. They expected actually to get out later that same day because they had caught this early. They hadn't let it prolong. Well, they pulled up to the hospital this one early morning. The kids were at home with a babysitter, probably one of my other cousins. They pulled up to the hospital. They parked. My, my, my cousin Jennifer, her husband Kane, and then little Jacob got out of the car, went into the hospital, went into the emergency room. They knew them by name at this point. I mean, this was a, a regular occurrence. They took them back into a room, and they were waiting on the doctor. Cain decided he was going to go on back out to get the, the uh, medical equipment, the medical devices that they had left in the car, bring them in so that the doctor could get to work immediately. They had this down pat, and they wanted it to go as quickly as possible. So Cain left Jennifer, my cousin, little Jacob, in the, the room there in the ER, ran back out to the car to grab the medical devices, and then came back. When he came back, little Jacob was no longer alive. They still don't know what happened. And my thought was, God, I know you're good. I know you love me. I know you love Jacob. I know you love Jennifer. I know you love Cain. But really? I mean, I know you're good. My anchor is there. But God, I don't understand it. I mean, how can a good and a loving God... Jacob hadn't done anything. I mean, from the moment that he was born, this was difficult. And I'm supposed to to trust that you're good and you're loving it. I know it's true, but I just don't see it right now. So I began to, to look and to study and to ask questions about how a good and a loving God can rule, not over... Not only in the chaos, but over the chaos. And I finally found an answer. I want to share it to you with you this morning. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. He is good. He is trustworthy. He is loving. And he rules and he reigns. See if I can explain it this way. Our seven-year-old, Grayson, sees the world a lot differently than I see the world and Mary Jo sees the world. Um, he thinks that bedtime should be a whole lot later than we think. Um, in fact, he would stay up later than us if we would let him. He likes to stay up late. Not only that, but he would also like to... Um, to he thinks dinner should have a lot more sugar than we think that it should have. Um, He thinks that all day should consist of playing and playing and playing. There should be no work involved. He sees the world so differently than I see the world, than Mary Jo sees the world. We just see the world differently because there's about a 25, 30 year age uh, gap. And so our seven-year-old sees the world much, much differently than we do, you know, 30 years advanced, 30 years down the line. If there's that much difference in how we see the world, just with 30 years of difference, with 30 years age gap, how much more different must the sovereign God of the universe, who rules from, 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 uh, 
from eternity past to, to eternity future. How much different must the God of the universe see the world than a finite being like you and like me? How much different must the God who sits on his throne and is not challenged by anyone or anything, how much different must he see this world than you and I see the world? For the vapor that we call life. And while that doesn't make the injustice or the chaos any easier, as we live in it, I hope we can anchor in this truth that if the God of the universe was able to be understood by me, he would not be worth worshiping. If the God of the universe saw the world the exact same way that my uh, simple mind sees the world, he would not be worth worshiping. And so because he sits on his throne and he sees from eternity to eternity, and he is present in it all, he is worthy to be worshipped. And it's a great to rem- uh, and it is a great reminder to know that he is good. That's the first thing that I take away from this text. And secondly is this. The gospel will go on and on and on, and nothing can stop. At its most vulnerable spot, at at its infancy, when only a few people knew Christ and followed him. The Roman Empire, the greatest power this world has ever known, could not stomp it out, even though it tried. The the Roman Empire went from modern-day England to modern-day India. It was a formidable foe, and even it could not stomp out the movement of the gospel. Fast forward to modern day Soviet Union. They would try to stop it out. They'd kick over the anthill and the ants would spread. They'd kick over the anthill and the ants would spread. Nothing can stop the movement of the gospel. I've told you this before, but I think it fits well here. Modern day China, today, July 19th, 2015, there are more believers in China than there are Americans. Not American believers, Americans. There are more people who claim Christ in China. I just read this morning, by 2035, there's going to be more believers on the continent of Africa than Asia and Europe combined. The gospel is moving and nothing can stop it. I read these, I read things, uh, you know, uh, in, in the newspaper about how Islam is moving you know, at a, at, a, at a more rapid pace than Christianity, and it's going to overtake Christianity as the major world religion. Nothing, nothing, nothing can stop the movement of the gospel. It will go on and on. No government, no movement, not ISIS, not even death. It will move on. And on that, we can stake our lives. Let's pray. Father, the gospel's moving. Every day people are hearing about Jesus who have never heard from him before. It will move on. Lord, thank you for allowing us to play a part in its movement.
Lord, I pray that some would answer the call. Here in Webb City, southwest Missouri, to the ends of the earth. And we can do it for the sake of your name. The good and loving name who rules in the chaos. Who rules above the chaos. And sees from eternity past to eternity future. And is sovereign over it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.